Christ our Savior, showing us what it means to not love the world nor the things of the world. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and our focus today will be on what is, I think, a fairly well-known passage, verses 15 through 17, and we will borrow our title from verse 15, Do Not Love the World. This is a simple and yet profound command with eternal ramifications. And, and I think that might be the best way to describe the text before us today. Simple, yet profound. It's so simple. It is so clear, yet it has profound effects as the Scripture causes us to examine our lives and see whether or not we love the world or if we love the Lord, and that then has effect on our eternity. The things of the world are passing, but the one who does the will of the Lord will live forever. So, so we need to allow this passage to guide and examine our hearts. And Scripture really makes it clear that there's one question that matters for all eternity. Who or what do you love? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you love the world? Do you love the things of the world? Jesus said on multiple occasions and in multiple ways that you cannot serve two masters. You can't love the world and love God at the same one. You will love one and you will hate the other. And so with that in mind, the text before us is of utmost importance because it draws a, a line in the sand of you either love the Lord and you will obey Him and you will go to be with Him forever, or you love the world and the things of the world. And if you love those things, you will, like those things, one day be destroyed. So let's read our text, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time as we study his word together today. Would you please stand, if you're able, in reverence of the reading of Holy Scripture. This is inerrant, inspired Scripture, the very words of God to us. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our God in heaven, we bow before you. We give you honor and glory and praise. You're the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts as we are before you and before your word. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would empower us to receive the truth. Pray that our frail hearts and minds would be able to receive the truth. Pray, Lord, that we would prove to be those who do not love the things of the world. Pray that you would give us an eternal focus, an eternal goal because there is eternal glory awaiting all those who persevere in Christ. What glorious hope that we have, what glorious reminder that we have that it's Christ who causes us to persevere, because he holds us and he keeps us. Lord, I thank you for the example of the Savior, tempted and tried in every way as we are, yet he was perfect without sin. He's a good, faithful, merciful high priest who 
the one who gave his life as a propitiation for our sins. Lord, as we hear the call not to love the world today, may we also hear the, the opposite call of that, that we must love Christ with all that we are. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts ready and eager to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, help us to put away distractions. Help us, Lord, just to give a devoted hour, hour and a half, however long we're gathered, Lord, to to focus on you, to praise you, to worship you, to learn from you. Pray that your spirit would work in our hearts today. If we act and work in our own strength, Lord, we know that we'll fail. Lord, by the powerful working of your spirit, I pray that you would write your word upon our hearts, rebuke our sin, correct and instruct us with great patience, conform us, our great God, to the image of your beloved Son. Pray that your spirit would move in us. We pray that all we do would be to the honor and the glory of Christ, who is the King, immortal, invisible, forever and ever. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So do not love the world. It's a simple command, friends. It's simple. It's clear. We really don't need to have much discussion to understand really what John has to say here. But what we do need to do is look at the Scripture because God's Word is clear, and John lays out for us what it means to love the world. And we need to examine our hearts in light of the Scriptures to see whether or not we're loving present temporal, passing things, or if our eyes and our hearts are fixed on eternity. Think back to last time. Last week, we considered the idea of the progress of godliness, of advancing from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and the idea before us today is really almost a continuation of that, because to overcome Satan, we saw that to make spiritual progress, we overcome the evil one. To make this spiritual progress, to overcome Satan, we must not love the world. If you overcome Satan, you are overcoming your love for the things of this world. You're overcoming the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. To make progress in godliness is to make progress in caring less about this world and this life and fixing your eyes more and more and more intently on eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. What you treasure is what you follow. What you treasure is what you chase. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart takes you after. So do you love the world Or do you love Christ? John's aim is to encourage us to put away worldly pleasures, to put away worldly pursuits and passions, and to be filled and to be content with Christ. Satan will come and he will offer you but one thing. It's worldly pleasure. It's that which is temporary, that which is fleeting, and that which is passing. And we must resist that. Dear friend, you must resist the temptation of Satan to put your pleasure in something earthly. But to resist that, you must take that desire and have it replaced with something. You can't just say, I'll not love the world and just press on toward nothingness. No, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must be filled with Christ. You must be content to only have Christ. An interesting thing as you think about that, Jesus himself was the chief example of this. That's why we read Matthew chapter 4, when he had all worldly treasure and pleasure and authority at his fingertips, not because Satan offered it to him, but because he is the Christ. When he had all that before him, he put away the cares of the world because he had a mission. He had a task before him from his father to go to the cross to bear the sin of the people that God has chosen. 
Christ is the solution. As we often see in Scripture, He's not only the solution, but He is the example. And so this is kind of the the thrust of our text, the main purpose, the main thing we want to see is that as partakers of eternal life through Christ, we must overcome worldly desires. We must put sin to death, and we must do only the will of the Father. So you overcome worldly desires, you put your sin and your sinful passions and sinful desires to death, and you do the will of the Father. You know, this text lends itself kind of to a, a compare and contrast. You know, that's what, that's what John keeps doing. He, he compares and contrasts really from verse to verse to verse to verse. So, so we'll see the danger of loving the world in, in verse 15. And that's set against the idea of being full of love for the Father. And then we'll see the desire of worldly pleasures, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And we consider that against the call of Scripture to forsake worldliness, and live for Christ. And then thirdly, we see the destruction of worldly things. This should press us in the importance of doing the will of the Father, because the one who does the will of the Father will live forever. So the danger of worldly love, the desire of worldly pleasure, and the destruction of worldly things. We begin at verse 15, the danger of worldly love. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John sets forth two straightforward commands. Do not love the world, nor the things in or of the world. And so we can look at both of those components. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. What does it mean to love the world? Do not love the world. Well, to love the world, we see the example of loving the world in a man named Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. What does it mean to love the world? It means that you desert and deny Christian beliefs and Christian ministers and Christian truths. You're so consumed with the world that you put all of these things that the Lord gives you and lays forth for you, you put them aside because you are going to pursue the flesh. This is one who lives their best life now because they don't have hope, because they're not willing to sacrifice. They're not willing to pursue godly, biblical, personal discipline in order to achieve glory and crowns of righteousness in eternal life. They want what they want, and they want it now. You know, this is one of the first things that a new believer, again, thinking about, we're we're on the tail of looking at, at spiritual infants. If you're a new believer, one of the things that you must learn is the practice of discipline and self-denial. If you want to advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, you must learn spiritual discipline. Disciplines like reading your Bible and praying and fellowshipping with the saints and being accountable. You must practice those disciplines. You must practice self-denial of, I want this sin, but I know it's sinful, and I'm going to ask the Lord to help me to put the desire of sin away. I'm going to resist temptation. I'm going to flee in the hour of temptation to Christ. I'm going to follow the example of Christ and return to this temptation, the quotation of Scripture. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you want to resist temptation, you must deny present pleasure. John says, do not love the world. He's not talking about not loving the Lord's creation. He's not talking about not loving the people of God's creation, but to not love worldly systems and temporal, passing, fleeting matters that you have an eternal perspective. And John clarifies this as he goes forward. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. How do you not love the world? You don't love the things that are in the world that are going to pass away. Think about what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are of the earth. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
Think of whatever is true and pure and good and honorable and of good repute. Think about those things. Don't dwell upon wickedness. Don't constantly set before your eyes and your mind and your ears things that bring no honor and glory to the Lord. In some ways, this world should be no more to us than a passageway to eternity. In some ways, maybe in many, in all ways. Because that's what this life is. It's just a passage to eternity. And that results in us needing to have this sort of tunnel vision. We, we, we don't look at all the noise going on around us, but we have this vision that looks only to the bright and glorious light of Christ. You don't see everything else, all the desires, the, the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. They, they don't steal your attention because your gaze is fixed on the glory of Christ. You know, we ought to enjoy the Lord's blessings in life. To have an ungrateful heart, dear friend, is sinful. To not enjoy the Lord's blessings with gratitude and thanksgiving is sinful. The things of life must be received with gratitude and they must be held so loosely, dear friend, because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. These things don't last. They are not our primary joy. It's that we look to Christ. You know, mark of spiritual maturity, I think, is the grateful partaking of earthly blessings, but always with a keen eye toward future eternal glory. So it's that, yes, you do live in the moment. You enjoy the things that the Lord gives you in life. You enjoy those blessings. You receive them with gratitude, but, but you're always looking beyond. You're not just looking at what's right before your face, but you're looking toward eternal glory. You're looking to, how can I enjoy this thing, this blessing, this gift to the glory of the Lord? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all unto the glory of God. That is the command of Christ. That is the command of the Word. John's goal is not that we live some ragged, run-down life. We should be ready and able to live with nothing, but that all things are held in proper perspective. That's what the Apostle Paul lays out in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. What is the secret, Paul? Next verse, Philippians 4.13. We could all quote it together. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've learned the secret to contentment. And it's that in every situation I can live because it's Christ who gives me strength. I don't walk along in my own power. I don't resist temptation to sin in my own strength. I don't walk through fiery trials, bearing up under some awful weight. No, I can do all things because Christ carries me onward. Because His grace is sufficient. Because His power is perfected in my weakness. Because His mercies are new every morning. Joy in Christ alone must be what presses you on every day. If you want to say, yes, Apostle John, I do not love the world nor the things in the world, what's the key to that? It's that joy in Christ presses you on every day, that you are filled completely by Christ. So what is the danger of loving the world and the things of the world? We've established that we should not love them, but what's the result if we do? Continue on in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Dear friend, that ought to stop you in your tracks. If you love the things of the world, the love of God is not in you. You do not love the Lord if you love the world. You can't love God and the world at the same time. And Jesus spoke about this, and, and he directly related it at one time to the love of money, but it broadly applies he said that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one 
and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's what's at stake here, dear friends. If you love the world, then your love can only be in one direction, and therefore you despise. You're devoted to the world, and you despise the the Lord. You love the world, and you hate the Lord, or you devote yourself to God. You love the Lord, and you despise and reject and hate and turn away from the things of the world. You know, so many would like for this not to be the case. And so this is where we're going to zone in just for a moment. Because there are so many who would, would like to take this love of the Lord and, and just have a little piece of it. But they also love the world. They love power. They love wealth. They love authority. They love the things of the world, the nice things in life. And they just want to have some of God because they want that eternal security of knowing that I have a fallback plan. When I get all my fulfillment, when I get all my enjoyment in the things of life, I have something to fall back on because I've professed faith in Christ. But that's not how salvation works. You either love the Lord or you love the world. It's not how Satan works. Satan is not going to allow you to dabble in the world and dabble in sin and then run back to Christ. You walk into that sin, you dabble in that sin, and it's going to become a snare. You give an inch to the devil, he'll take you further than you ever thought. That's how the old saying goes, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. So we must resist the sinful things of the world, yes, but even beyond sin. There are things in life other than Christ, that we sometimes will cling to and say, we must have this to be joyful. Dear friend, that's where we must examine our hearts. Because if there's something that you need in life beyond Christ to to be joyful, then you are missing the mark. And understand, dear ones, that we're all in that stage of the Christian life. If we went person by person by person in this room and with every saint in the world, surely we could find one thing, if we're going to be humble and honest, that, that we really want to hold on to, that we really want to have, and, and we must be willing to put all aside for the sake of walking joyfully with the Savior. So practically, how do we apply this? How do we think about this? Well, firstly, kind of in a generic type of sense, you must devote yourself to serving the Lord. You must give fully of yourself to serving Him and His purposes and His people. The the Lord ordains the local church for a reason. And one of the ways that we love the Lord and don't love the world is to to devote ourselves to His people in the local church. You must set your mind and your affections on Christ and allow all temporal earthly matters to, to rank below Christ. Almost, I, I had originally written there to, to, pa, to pass you by, that you love Christ so much that these things just pass right by you, but that's not necessarily, I don't think, even accurate either because the Lord gives us good things. He gives us blessings and pleasures that are earthly that aren't going to last, but He gives them to us to enjoy, but they must have their proper rank. They must come and hold their proper order and place in our lives. So you must set your affections on Christ above all things. You must train your heart in this devotion. To train your heart in this devotion is to know the Lord, and to know Him is to love Him. Have you ever loved something or someone that you didn't know? Anybody that says yes, you're not being honest. You don't love that which you don't know. You, you might love an idea that you have of something, but it's still what you know, what you think that thing might be or the joy that it might bring you. To love the Lord, you must know Him. And so to not love the world nor the things of the world means that you need to know more of God. You need to know more of His Word. You need to commune with Him more deeply in prayer. You you need to enter into fellowship with Him often and regularly and, and deeply And intimately, you need to know the God you serve if you would desire to love Him. 
We need not build our homes and our lives on or around worldly things. Simple service to and join the Lord and in His church must be the priority of our lives. That we're not built on, that we're not pursuing worldly things. And again, I drive that back to the home because the order of our life must be that we're not pursuing things of the world, that we're pursuing Christ above all, that we serve Him with gladness, that we find joy in serving Him, that we find joy in fellowshipping with the saints. The priority of your life must be the walk with the Lord. The danger of worldly love is not that everything in the world is bad, but that you're battling against Satan. The danger of worldly love is that you still battle against the flesh and the flesh, and Satan will seek to turn even good things into opportunities to sin. Understand, dear friend, that you're in a battle, and you must seek to put all these things away so that you might enjoy Christ. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the danger of worldly love and then the desire of worldly pleasure. Verse 16. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, do you notice the extent of that statement right off the bat? For all that is in the world. Not some of what is in the world, but all that is in the world. The world. So that means your jobs, your relationships, your possessions, everything that is worldly, that is passing away, is not from the Lord. Now, He may give you those things to enjoy, but ultimately they must be put in the box of worldly things. And that means they're not your ultimate joy. The Lord is the king of this world, He's the king of all things, He is the sovereign ruler, and all things belong to Him. And he gives us things that we might enjoy them, but they must have their proper place. We must enjoy the things of life with utmost caution because they can turn sinful in the blink of an eye. Just let that just dwell on that for just a moment. That we enjoy all the blessings of life. But dear friend, do it with caution. But because even Things like enjoying, you know, for us, maybe it's enjoying sports with your children. You can use those as outreach. You can use those to teach lessons. You can use those just for fun family time, but it can become an idol in an instant. And I'm sure we can all come up with our own examples of things that, that we can enjoy to the glory of God that if we don't carefully guard them, they become just that, idols. They become sin. And we must guard them and enjoy them carefully. So how does John describe these worldly pursuits? Again, this is the desire of worldly pleasure. He firstly says that we must avoid the lust of the flesh. Now, I'm going to rely a little bit on Matthew Henry here because he, he gives a, a unified and succinct definition for each of these terms, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So I'm going to Lean on him a little bit just to give us kind of a single view, a progressive view through these things. He said of the lust of the flesh that this is the will and the appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures. And objectively, all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh. You know, you can think about Galatians 5, the lust and the deeds of the flesh. So it's things like immorality, coarse joking. You could even add laziness and gluttony and so on, anger, disputes, strife, factions. These are things that, that build up in our flesh. And, and Henry would even point this in. He says that the flesh is distinguished from the eyes in life, and so it really points even maybe to deeds and desires of the body, maybe pointing it back to things like immorality and gluttony and laziness. And so the desire of worldly pleasure begins with the desires of the body, and then we can even work those out maybe into some of these fleshly things like anger. When's the last time, you know, had a conversation right before service about, about work? 
When's the last time you ever thought about yourself as being slothful or lazy? When's the last time that you examined the whole of your life against the command of the Lord not to be lazy, not to be slothful? You know, Scripture gives a picture of people, especially men, working diligently. You know, we have a five-day work week. Some have a four-day work week. Some maybe even have an easier and a shorter work week than that. Then the Scripture, in the days of Scripture, it was six days. You labor and you do all your work, and then the, the one day, you find that day of the Lord, the day of rest and, and spiritual rejuvenation. Proverbs 20, verse 4, gives a description of someone who's lazy. It says, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, and he begs at the harvest because he has nothing. Proverbs 6, 10 This is the the lazy person speaking, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Now, I'm all in favor, Scripture is all in favor of rest. Jesus rested. But consider your life and consider, as we think about the lust of the flesh, whether or not you might be given over to a bit of slothfulness. You know, how do you fight against that? You don't have to be out doing manual labor at every hour of the day for six days a week. But maybe you use your downtime, whether it's downtime from your job or, or from another opportunity, and you use it for spiritual work and spiritual nourishment for your soul. You, you, you don't have to be working 80 hours a week to, to not be lazy. But you need to use your time wisely. You need to guard against the lust of the flesh because if you, if you take these, these weekends that we're blessed to have, it's great to have a Friday off or a Saturday off. But if you take them just to let your mind turn to mush, you're being lazy. You're giving in to the lust of the flesh. When you have that time, dear friend, pursue spiritual nourishment. Pursue the Word. Pursue fellowship and accountability. Pursue things that will make you more like Christ. Thinking about the lust of the flesh, do you think about the other desires of your body? Things, as I mentioned, like anger, dispute, strife, contentions. Do you think about how dangerous those fleshly things are? When Moses gave in to the anger of his flesh, Numbers chapter 20, at the waters of Meribah, he, he grew so angry with Israel, he struck the rock against the Lord's command. And you think, okay, he struck a rock, it's not a big deal. The Lord said that was the reason that he was disqualified to enter the promised land. One act of anger. One act of anger that went against the Lord's command. We need to conquer our flesh. The lust of your flesh need to be controlled. You need to work hard to fight against temptation, and that starts with a heart that is conquered by Christ and controlled by the Holy Spirit. You can't conquer the flesh outwardly when your heart is given the opportunity to run headlong sin after sin after sin. Conquer the flesh by allowing your heart to be conquered by Christ. We need to take our flesh captive and make it wholly obedient to Christ. John continues, the lust of the flesh and then the lust of the eyes. Well, what, do, what does the lust of the eyes entail? Again, Matthew Henry, he said, the eyes are delighted in pleasures and treasures. Riches and rich possessions are craved by an extravagant eye. This is the lust of covetousness. So, so it's these treasures of life. The lust of the eyes is, is looking at these things and just having strong desire to always have more. It's looking at worldly riches and possessions and really just having an unrelenting desire. You know, there's nothing inherently sinful with, with wanting a, a new truck or, or a, a nicer home. There's nothing sinful in, in that base desire, but... The lust of the eyes is that unrelenting desire for and pursuit of more. And specifically, I think, as Henry points out, it's covetousness. It's seeing what others have. It's always comparing yourself to others and saying, well, 
this person has this, and I would really like something nice like that as well. And the opposite of that, spiritually speaking, is contentedness. It's being content. If you would like to fight against the lust of the eyes, you need to fight to be content. To be discontent, to have this lust of the eyes, dear friend, it is a spiritual poison. It is a spiritual poison because it will always drive you to not be grateful. It will always drive you to want more, to not be content with the place that the Lord has you in life. And it must be repented of. It must be put to death. Even the most mature believer may battle contentment. And dear friend, if you battle it, put it to death. Go before the Lord and ask His forgiveness. Turn from your sin and be thankful for all that the Lord has given you. You know, discontentment is what plagued Israel. Really, if you were to go through the history of the Old Testament, that's what plagued Israel all of their days. They would look at the nations around them and they would desire their wealth. They desired their way of life. And what it always resulted in for Israel was punishment. They would sinfully be discontent, and then ultimately the Lord would either give them over to their desire, and they'd fall into sin, and then the Lord would punish them. Or even before going that far, the Lord would would break them and crush them and bring them under His judgment. We must fight against this. And Solomon, I believe, is informative here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I want to kind of contrast a couple things that King Solomon has written about in Scripture. So Ecclesiastes is generally believed to be written by Solomon. And in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, King Solomon writes, Then I became great, and I increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For all my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So he gave himself everything that he wanted. If he looked at it and said, I want that, he pursued it and he gave it to himself. Then Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. He said, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. All was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He says, I gave myself everything I desired. It was all worth nothing. Nothing. It's like striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? You can't because it's just going to continue to blow on. And he said, that's what I was striving after, that which could not be attained because he was striving to please himself with things in this life. Then what's interesting is Solomon also wrote many of the Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verse 23. He said, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. And the way that that's constructed, my understanding is that that first phrase, buy truth and sell it not, applies to each of those ideas. Buy truth and sell it not. Buy wisdom and sell it not. Buy instruction, sell it not. Buy understanding and sell it not. He'd given himself everything. He said it was all vanity. But then as he wrote in the book of Proverbs, buy the truth. Seek knowledge. Seek wisdom. Seek instruction. Seek understanding. Chase after that with all your heart, and then you will find contentment and joy in the Lord. The medicine of a discontent mind is a mind that's filled with truth and wisdom and understanding. If you struggle with contentment, dear friend, the the remedy is to fill your mind with the truth, to replace those desires with the desire to know more of the Lord. And this is where the battle to overcome Satan is often fought. Again, tying in to to the idea of the progression of the Christian life. If we are to overcome Satan, it must be in the battlefield of our mind. Would you have more of the world, or would you have more spiritual knowledge 
and wisdom? You know, would you have more meaningless baseball stats? Or would you have more wisdom and knowledge? Would you have more money because you worked harder than all your coworkers and you got the promotion? Or would you have more of Christ? Would you have more as a mother of, of people looking to you because your children are so advanced in their homeschool education and, and they say, look at the devotion of their mother? Or would you have more of Christ? And would you have your children have more of Christ? And education is important, so don't hear that to say education is not important because children must learn how to learn to the end that they learn how to learn Christ. But would you have more of the world or would you have more true knowledge? John gives a third warning. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Matthew Henry, one final time, he said, A vain mind, describing this boastful pride of life, a vain mind craves all the grandeur, all the fittings, all the pomp of a vainglorious life, this ambition and this thirst after honor and applause. He said, this is in part the disease of the ear. It must be flattered with admiration and praise. Perhaps you see the, the pattern here. The, the lust of the flesh, your body conceives of something and you pursue it. The lust of the eyes, you you see something and you pursue it because you want more and more. And then your flesh, you've just given it more and more and more. You've not stopped the progression of sin. And so this ultimate end is glory. That you want this glory. You have this ambition to receive the praise and the applause of men. So, so really John is almost progressing as he goes through these. I think the boastful pride of life, then, we could safely say is the most dangerous and consuming of the sins that John lists. And part of that is how this appetite is fulfilled. The boastful pride of life is fulfilled by gaining the applause of others. And Henry hits on the idea of flattery. You, you build others up so that they will, in turn, build you up. And flattery always leads to this web of deceit because flattery is not genuine encouragement. It's encouragement that you don't really believe, so it's lying. It's being deceitful and deceptive. This path of pride leads to a tangled web, and though Christ can surely forgive you, Christ can surely redeem the one who has pursued the boastful pride of life. Dear friend, let me tell you, the cost of this sin is very often the most costly of all that John writes here. Because you ruin relationships. You, you ruin your word because you show yourself to be deceitful and a deceiver. The cost of pursuing vain self-glory it's a cost, dear friend, that none of us want to bear. The weight of that sin is so great. The, the cost to come out of that sin, again, you can be redeemed in Christ. But the cost is so high. I want to talk, and then the flip side of that, just for a moment. So we understand the church is no place for flattery. Uh, we would all agree, we would all understand that the Lord says that is sinful. But we should then... On the flip side of that, be known for genuine gratitude to one another and genuine encouragement. You know, one of the ways that someone doesn't have to flatter is if you're, you're constantly giving one another genuine encouragement. You're building one another up. If you know someone who struggles with that sin, I'm not saying to be a crutch for them, but genuinely give them real encouragement. Show them what it looks like to not be a flatterer, but to be an encourager. And the church should mark that. We should be an example uh, of thankfulness to one another, to vocal thankfulness to one another, and vocal encouragement of one another. This is one of the ways that we fight against the boastful pride of life. 
John writes at the end of verse 16, he says, All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desire of worldly pleasure is not from the Lord, and we must flee from it. That's what we saw in the example of Jesus in Matthew 4. Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, Jesus, all these I will give to you. Now, Satan obviously didn't actually have that authority, but he's a deceiver. And he says, I'll give all of this glory to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The response to these desires of worldly pleasure is to worship God alone, to be devoted to him alone. And dear friend, let me tell you what that is. That is humility in action. It's looking and saying, I could pursue all of this grandeur, all of this glory, all of this power, all of this authority, but I'm not going to do it because the Lord is greater than me. He deserves worship. I don't deserve glory. He does. You worship the Lord. The most painted, pointed, clear act of human humility is devoted worship to the Lord. Because the Lord is worthy. Dear friend, if you want to fight against the desire of worldly pleasure, the first tool in your tool belt ought to be humility. Humility that drives genuine worship. We need to quickly move to the third instruction that John gives us, the destruction of worldly things. Verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see the contrast very clearly there. The world and all of its lusts are passing away, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. Think about what Peter said, 1 Peter 1.24, he's quoting Isaiah. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the grass. Grass wither, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's the world and all of its pleasures. It's like the grass. It's like the flower of the grass. It, it, it may bloom up. It may give you temporary passing pleasure, but it's going to wilt. It's going to be blown away. It's going to wither. James 5.2 says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And he's talking about money there, but I think we can apply that plainly to getting rich on worldly things. If that's your desire, you will be plunged into ruin and destruction. But, you know, John always has a but. Scripture almost always has a but. But God, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, says the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You can pursue the worldly things, and you might find temporary pleasure, but they're passing away. That pleasure will not last. You can do the will of God. You can obey Him, serve Him, and worship Him. In that you will find a treasure that is eternal. A hope that doesn't fade. An inheritance that is imperishable. I'm just reminded here, we don't need to complicate the Christian life. One who does the will of God lives forever. You know, that, that applies to all of us, but you know, often try to think about how these things apply to things like parenting. Dear friend, don't complicate the Christian life for your child. You do the will of God out of the overflow of your heart, and he says you will live forever. 
What is the will of God? Glad you asked. It's your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Talked about this last night as we were putting our kids to bed. What is sanctification? It's holiness. It's being conformed to Jesus. It's your life looking more like the perfect life that he lived. Perfect holiness. Perfect righteousness. No sinful anger. No sinful pride. Not giving in to any temptation. That is God's will for your life. If you do the will of God, you will live forever. Frankly, this should be an easy choice. We just see such a plain contrast. The one who pursues worldly things, they pass away. You will receive eternal punishment if that's the mark of your life. Or you have the one who desires Christ and pursues Christ. You do the will of God and you live forever should be an easy choice, but so often it's not, even for those of us who are in Christ. And why is that? It's because we're tempted. It's because we're willing to be deceived and fooled, and we give in to the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes. We desire the boastful pride of life. We allow ourselves to fall into the snare of temptation. What we have to realize, friends, is that these things are lies. These worldly things, when Satan shows us that they'll give us pleasure, that, dear friend, is a lie from the pit of hell. Reject those lies and pursue what is true. They find some lustful fleshly, temporary pleasure, but it's just that. It's temporary. It's temporary. Lasting and fulfilling, God-honoring joy comes when you put all those things away and the goal of your heart is to have more and to know more of Christ. As a partaker of eternal life through Christ, you must put away things of the world. You must overcome worldly desires, you must put sin to death, and you must do the will of the Father. So would you do this? Would you deny yourself? Would you take up your cross and follow Christ? Would you follow Christ on a path that might lead to a temporary delay of pleasure but results in eternal joy? Or you like those described in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, when he told them to pursue moral excellence, but some did not because Peter said they're short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from your former sins. So which one will it be? Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Will you serve the flesh or will you pursue Christ? path to glorifying the Lord and enjoying Him forever is not always, maybe not even often, the easiest path, but it's always the right one. You may experience intense trial, intense difficulty. You may be tired and physically run down much of your life, but you're pursuing a lasting treasure. So serve the Lord, dear friend. Glorify Him in all that you do. Do it in the power of the Spirit because you are transformed by Christ. You do all those things and then you leave the consequences to God. Walk by the Spirit, not according to the flesh, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray.